We are in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be starting partway into verse 19 this morning after the first sentence that we looked at or the conclusion of that sentence in verse 19. And Lord willing, we will be working our way to verse um, 30, if the Lord wills. If we don't make it there, that's okay. Isn't it? Okay. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we can fellowship in the word together. Lord, help us as we consider your text, your, your communication, the divine communication in this text. I pray that you will open our eyes to see it and understand it, and not just see it and understand it, but that we will recognize your authority in your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in our lives in this story, this part of the initial story of Saul, who will later become Paul, that we will grapple with and understand and that your spirit will work mightily and move mightily within us to draw us close to worship you. In your name I pray. Amen. So as I just prayed, we are continuing our conversation on Saul. If you remember, uh, last week we were looking at the initial introduction, actually not the inter initial introduction, which is just Saul was holding the clothes, but the initial introduction of Saul and his conversion. And it concluded in, in the beginning of verse 19, where, uh, well actually the end of 18 into 19, when he rose, was baptized, and then taking food, he was strengthened. Our text continues from there. And again, before we read it, I want to remind you, of what we said last week, it is easy for us to miss the point of the story because of several things. The fantasticness of the story sometimes, and certainly last, last study last week, there was a fantastic part of the story, wasn't there? It was dramatic. It was supernatural. It was fantastic. We have some more of that today in this text, although not as stunning as the last chapter. But at the same time, we have a guy, Saul, who is now converted, he's now saved, and it's easy to get caught up and enthralled with the storyline from a purely horizontal story about this guy, Saul. If I may just say this before we get into the text itself, I know when I was growing up, I heard this story many, many times. It was told via flannel graph, it was told via stories. And you know what I remember about the story? Only one thing. He was lowered down in a basket. That's the only thing I remember as a child. That was it. Because the story, was, as it was presented to me as a child, and I suspect it wasn't much different for many of you if you grew up in a church, was quite a, 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 a horizontal story about the movement of Saul, about the activity of of Saul, about the progression of Saul, about his journey from Saul to Paul. And we hear all these fantastic stories, whether it's him being bitten by a snake, being shipwrecked, uh, being stoned, being, being um, beaten with rods, being thrown in prison, uh, and then the miraculous, the, the earthquakes that open up the, that we'll see in a little bit, that open up the, um, the uh, prison. Those are the stories we hear. All the time, don't we? And in hearing the stories, we miss the point of the stories. And I think it's really important that, that Saul and then Paul is given to us, not so that we say, wow, what a great guy Saul or Paul was. Because 
as we, as we said when we first started out the study of the book of Acts, remember I said, I think that the title of the book, the, the Acts of the Apostles, in a very real way, is a, is, is a wrong understanding because it really isn't about the Acts of the Apostles. First of all, it denies all the, by, by omission, it denies all of the acts of the disciples, right? Now, does the book focus only on the apostles? No, we've got deacons in there, and they're pretty impressive people too, aren't they? They are the disciples, they're pretty impressive people too, but for some reason we call it the acts of the apostles. Could I just submit to you that that misses the whole point? And I don't think the answer is to have it called the acts of the apostles, uh, deacons, and disciples. <laughs> I don't think that's the answer either. The point is discovered in Acts 1.8, and you shall have received power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part or the end of the earth. The point is the Holy Spirit. If this book says anything, it is talking about the acts of the Holy Spirit in people who he has redeemed, and before that it is even the acts of the Holy Spirit to bring someone from death to life. This book, more than almost any other book, is a Holy Spirit book. This, this is the book, if you want to learn about the Holy Spirit and his work. Now, there's not necessarily a whole lot of theological discourse about the Holy Spirit in the book. There you go to the, to the epistles. But in the demonstrating of the truth of who the Holy Spirit is, this is the book. And it is stunning to see every page of this book. It's about the acts and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. And by the way, you even see the Holy Spirit work in people hardening hearts, just like should be expected. You see it both sides. With that in mind, let's read the text this morning, and then we can uh, unpack it uh, slowly but surely. Starting in verse 19, after the first sentence concludes, For some days he was with the disciples at, at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounding the Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but the plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates night, day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And that's our text this morning. A lot there. 
So we're probably going to kind of breeze over some really important things, but I want to get the whole story of the section together. And I think you could argue this is one long story from the middle of 19 through 30, although there is probably a big break in between that's not referenced here. We'll talk about that when we get there. The text starts out this morning pretty interestingly. <clears throat> Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. It's kind of a, like almost sounding like a, just a, a transition phrase, isn't it? A, a transition verse? It is not. He just got saved, just got baptized. And it's important we put it in its context. He was traveling to Damascus to do what? To persecute and ultimately kill Christians. Haul them back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and ultimately killed. On the way, he is miraculously redeemed on the road to Damascus just outside Damascus. And you know the story. He's blinded. He's hauled off because this is all by God's plan. He's hauled off to whose house? Ananias' house. At the same time, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Judas's house. At the same time, thank you, he's hauled off to Judas's house at the same time, and that, by the way, is not Judas Iscariot, if you weren't here last week. At the same time, God reveals himself, Jesus reveals himself to who? Ananias, and he tells Ananias to go over to Judas' house because there's a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus waiting for him. And of course, Ananias responds, yeah, wait a second, time out. Isn't he the guy that's killing and persecuting Christians? Yeah, I prepared him. He is, from eternity past, belongs to me, and he is going to be a minister for me. So Ananias immediately unquestioningly at this point, gets up and goes over to Judas' house. And he walks into Judas' house, and he walks up to the blind Saul and puts his hand on him and addresses him, importantly, brother. He, he, he submits to God's revealed will and embraces Saul immediately as a brother, doesn't he? Saul receives his sight, gets baptized, and according to the text in 18 and 19, he gets, he gets baptized, and then he eats, and he's refreshed. That brings us to this starting point in our message this morning. For some days, that is, for some days since he was, what? Saved and baptized, right? Saved, three days later, baptized. For some days, that is probably from the days, referring primarily to the days he got baptized, from those days, for some days, how many we don't know, for some days he was what? With the disciples at Damascus. What does that mean? He was hanging out with them. They were fellowshipping the scriptures. This is most likely, if we could sum it up as clearly as possible, it's most likely Acts 2, 42 to 47 taking place in Damascus. That is, they're hanging out, they're breaking bread together, they're praying together, they're studying the scriptures together, they're encouraging and exhorting one another. The crucial point is, this man Saul, who was just saved, who the moment before he was saved, hated who? Christ and Christians, and now, for days, I want you to notice the words, for days, they're doing what? He's doing what? He's fellowshipping with Christians. 
For days, this is a situation, the picture that's being painted by Luke here is for days what this guy saw once more than anything else is what? Fellowship. What this guy wants, this guy saw once more than anything else is to be in the Scriptures with these disciples. To taste and see the Lord who just redeemed him is good. What he wants more than anything else is to drink deeply at the, at the spring of living water. This is what he wants. And so for days, for days, where is he found? He's found with believers, with the disciples. You get a sense that this is a craving for Saul, don't you? This is a deep, deep, Holy Spirit, driven longing. Remember we said it's about the working of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit's at work in him and what he wants is to hang out with believers who love Jesus. And the next verse, the very next verse shifts the focus. It's the staccato focus. Verse 19. For days he's with the disciples at Damascus. And then Immediately, verse 20, and immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the Son of God. If verse 19 is this newly saved believer, Saul, saying what I want is to be with believers, what is verse 20 saying? I want people to be, what? I want people to be here too. I want people to follow Jesus as well. I want people to know what I know. I want people to know who I know. I want people to love who I love. I want people to, to, to know that Jesus is the Messiah. So on the one hand, verse 19, you have Saul, who hated Christians because he hated Christ, gloriously saved, and the ramifications and I choose that word very specifically, the ramifications or the effect, the inevitable effect is that Saul wants to be with believers. I mean, that is a stunning shift, isn't it? This isn't the guy who is ambivalent. You can't argue that, that Saul was just a guy who, well, he didn't know and now he knows. You can't argue that Saul was a guy who was ambivalent and now he loves. What you have is you have this dramatic contrast from hatred to love, which, is, by the way, is no different from those who are ambivalent and from those who don't know. The Bible says that no one seeks after God and everyone hates him, goes their own way. Just that Saul's was on display. Does that make sense? And there's a, arguably instantaneous change in Saul's heart. See, for Saul... Salvation wasn't one aspect of his life, was it? The sense that in the text, in these two verses, it wasn't an aspect of his life. Who got that fixed. It wasn't for Saul. I got, I got my ticket to heaven now. I'm no longer hellbound. I found out who the Messiah is. And so now I'm heaven bound. And I got my ticket. And I'm good to go. And I say that, you've heard me say that many, many times. 
But we have to be honest, that's where a lot of Christianity is today, isn't it? The vast majority of Christianity has nothing to do with this, verse 19 and 20. The vast majority of Christianity, 19 and 20, is a foreign construct. As a matter of fact, for the vast majority of Christianity, verse 19 and 20 is an antithesis to the vast swath of Christianity. I would present to you that verse 19 and 20 is not just an antithesis to it, but it is something, it is a concept, it is a perspective that is actually despised by a vast swath of Christianity today in a non-persecuted world. For Saul, what he wanted was two things. He wanted to fellowship with other believers. He longed to be with believers. He longed to talk of and hear of and read of and pray to Jesus. And in the midst of all that, verse 20, what he longed to do was to tell people about Jesus. Can I just throw this out here real quickly? There is no evidence in between 19 and 20 or anywhere in between there, even throw 18 in, 17, I don't care, where you go. There's no evidence that anybody sat down with Saul and said, now, Saul, now that you're saved, here's two things you've got to do. Got a fellowship with believers, number one, and you really need to get out there and tell people about Jesus. You know why? Because God commanded it. Let's close in prayer. Do you realize that's not there? It's, it's not that it's just not there. It's not even implied. It just says he got baptized, he ate and was strengthened, and hung out with believers. You know what it says? And in hanging out with believers, he's like, I want to go to the temple. I want to go to the synagogue. And I want to tell people about Jesus. There's no evidence anywhere in here that he's prompted to do this or commanded to do this or cajoled into doing this or manipulated into doing this or being guilted into doing this. And I use those terms because that's what typically happens. Isn't it? No program he goes to, right? He doesn't go to an evangelism explosion program and figure it all out so that he can go out with, with a team on Tuesday nights and do it. Do you see that anywhere in there? Yeah, I mean, I mean you could argue, you could argue, yeah, but this is the early church, right? And it's kind of disjointed and dysfunctional at a lot of levels, and it is. There's no question. But remember, the book is about the working of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Correct? It's about the moving of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And when the Spirit moved in Saul's life, he was changed from hating to loving. Hating Jesus to loving Jesus. Hating Jesus' disciples to loving Jesus' disciples. And wanting to identify with them and wanting to fellowship with them. He was changed from trying to destroy Christianity to becoming someone who wanted to proclaim Jesus. And notice how it's described here in verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Kind of emphatic, isn't it? 
is the Son of God. Jesus, remember, he's where? He's in the synagogue, which means he's he's speaking to who? Jews. Jews that have heard all their life about the promised Messiah. And he comes and he says to these these Jews in, in Damascus, in the synagogue, he is the Son of God. Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed. Why were they amazed? Well, they're amazed because of who he was and what they knew about him. That makes it really clear. This amazement is going to change relatively quickly. At this point in time, they're just amazed. And they comment and say, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? And remember what Ananias said. And I said the very same thing, didn't he? To, to Jesus. Which means that it was commonly understood, commonly known, that this guy Saul is the destroyer of all things Christian. It was clear all the way up to Damascus. So the Jews all knew about it, and they were amazed that this man, who created so much, as the term is in the, in the, in the ESV, havoc in Jerusalem, and we know the havoc was so great that the Christians in Jerusalem, by and large, not all, but by and large, were driven out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And they're amazed that this guy has been so absolutely transformed. Now, could I again just stop on this for a second? Because it's an interesting perspective. Saul is hanging out with believers that he once hated just a few weeks before, or maybe even less than a week. He's hanging out with them, fellowshipping with them, eating with them, living with them, breaking bread with them, studying the scriptures and praying with them. He's going to the temple and he's preaching the scriptures. He's preaching the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And the people, the Jews in Damascus, how does it describe again? They're what? Amazed. It's an interesting choice of words when you really think it through. Because remember, the book of Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I find it interesting, the contrast, if I may say it again, the contrast between Saul pre-salvation to Saul post-salvation, that's not the contrast I find intriguing. That I expect. I do. That I expect. What I find intriguing is the lack of that contrast that exists today. That's the thing I find intriguing when I read the text, is the lack of that contrast. You may say, well, yeah, but come on, Steve, this is only, only Saul. I mean, his, 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 his salvation was supernatural, as if anyone else's isn't. Right? I know, you and I didn't have a light shining from heaven and Jesus didn't actually speak to us. But the, the Jews in Damascus didn't know about, they didn't see that. They weren't there. They may have heard about it from the people who were with him at the time, but they didn't see it. 
All they know is what? He was that, and he's now this. Is that what they know? He was that, and now he's this, and their response is what? They're amazed. Now you could say, well, again, that's just Paul. But you see that everywhere, don't you? In the scriptures? Isn't that always the case? Every time? The guy who is blind receives his sight? And the people seem pretty amazed, don't they? And then he does what? He tries to get the Pharisees to come meet with Jesus. And he doesn't even know who Jesus is until he runs into Jesus right after he says that. And he bows down and worships him. You find it throughout the New Testament. When people come in contact with Jesus, there is a dramatic shift in their lives. It's stark. And we even sing about it, don't we? When we sing things like, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Isn't that a dramatic shift? Isn't it? I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Isn't that a dramatic shift? I, I mean, come on, let's face it. I once was a corpse, and now I'm a living being. That's kind of dramatic. And you see this repeatedly through the scriptures. There was a point in time when Stephen wasn't a believer. And by all accounts, Stephen becoming a deacon happened relatively quickly. We know that the time frame between the day of Pentecost and, and Stephen's being a deacon is really tight. That was an amazing shift, wasn't it? And you see that over and over and over again. Interestingly enough, the times when you don't see that, up to this point in time in Acts, the amazing times when you don't see that shift, that change, I can give you a couple. Ananias and Sapphira. Right? And then Simon the magician. Right? You don't see that that shift, that change, do you? You don't see it. You go into the epistles, and it, the same thing happens over and over and over again. Now I know there are exceptions where, again, the four soils, where people seem to flourish, and, and next thing you know, they disappear, right? We've got examples such as classic Demas. Demas, you mentioned Judas. I was trying to refer to after the resurrection, but yeah, Judas. But after the resurrection, you, you have classic example Demas, right? I mean, he was ministering for, for Christ even. With Paul. But he left him because he loved agape, covenanted, covenantal loyalty. The present world. It's a stunning perspective. But the one thing that you see repeatedly, universally through the scriptures, is that when God saves someone, truly saves someone, the change is pretty evident. It's pretty striking. Today, <laughs> i got to be honest with you, too often, here's what I hear. Yeah, I was, I was lost and, and I was smoking and then I got saved I stopped smoking. Like, really? 
I was saved. I mean, I was, I was a drunk. I got saved, and, and then I never touched alcohol again. Really? Really? Is that the example of the Scriptures? Now, the example of Scriptures is, I was a hater of God, now I love Him. I was a hater of the things of Jesus. I rejected Him as my Redeemer. And now I fully embrace Him as my Redeemer. Oh, wretched man that I am, right? Romans 7. Oh, but thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. You see, it doesn't go back to, now I don't do this anymore. It goes back to, he was once my enemy, but now he's my king. Right? He's my king. I once despised and rejected him, now he's my older brother. Whom I love more than life itself. And not only do you see that in the storyline of the scriptures over and over and over again, which, again, I will say is not the amazing, wow, look at these people. It's what the Holy Spirit did in people's lives. And some people could say, again, but yeah, but Steve, that's just the scriptures. No, it's not. Read church history. When God gets a hold of someone's heart, when they are redeemed, something changes. And in fact, everything changes. That's what happens. We cannot look at this storyline and say this is the anomaly. We must not. Because the text is trying to show us what happens when the Spirit comes on someone with power. And when we're saved, He does. And when He comes on someone with power, what happens with Saul? hanging out with disciples, and proclaiming Jesus. Unequivocally, unapologetically, objectively, He is the Son of God. So the people are amazed. In verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 22 is interesting. We need to understand it briefly. When it says in verse 22, but, but Saul increased all the more in strength, that is in no way talking about physical strength. This is not a bounce back from three days of not eating and drinking. This is far beyond that. When it says Saul increased all the more in strength, it's talking about, what do you think? Holy Spirit strength. And why would he not? What's he doing? He's hanging out with Jesus with, with, with believers, right? And being ministered to by believers, ministering to believers, and the Holy Spirit is using all that in his life, breaking bread, praying, the Spirit's using all that in his life because that's what the Spirit uses, the Word of God to transform him. And he is driven to do what? By the Spirit. To proclaim Jesus is the Son of God. Would that not all the more cause him to become stronger and stronger in the Lord with the power of the Holy Spirit? That's exactly what happens. 
That's exactly what happens for Saul. But Saul increased all the more in strength. And the evidence of that is dramatic between 21 and 22. I'm sorry, in 20 and 22. In 20, he's going and saying he is the Son of God. In 22, it says what? And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. As he is spending time with, with the disciples of Jesus, the learners of Jesus, and then being a learner of Jesus along with them, he is driven by the Holy Spirit to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. And all that process, and the implication is that that's the process the Spirit uses, if I could just throw that in there. If you're wonder, wondering why you may not be strong in the Spirit, you claim to be a believer and you, you say, man, I just, I'm not strong in the Spirit. Ask yourself a question. Are you hanging out with believers who love Jesus? That's, that's huge. Because the Spirit used the Word as believer. He uses means, and the means He uses to bring the Word to us, one another, is oftentimes believer to believer. Is that how it happens? Ministering one to another, and what does that happen? What happens there? The Spirit works there. Now, He doesn't work if we're speaking heresy to one another, or speaking truth to one another, ministering the Word of God to one another, praying to Christ together, praying to God for His kingdom to come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We find ourselves strengthened. <laughs> You get an idea why Paul and Silas were singing, singing hymns in, in, in the prison? Get the idea? Why do you think they were? Because they loved singing? Because those were the only songs they knew? Because they're encouraging and building up one another. The scriptures even talk about that in Colossians. To build up one another with songs and hymns and spirits or whatever, however, that's a bad quote, but you get the idea. You build up one another. That's what the Spirit uses, the truth in each other's lives. Paul and Silas are together in the prison singing songs together, encouraging and exhorting each other in the Word of God presented in those songs. No wonder why in this storyline that Saul is just moved from just getting up and declaring that Jesus is the Son of God to now doing what? What does it say again? He's actually confounding these Jews. Now, the text doesn't say that, but I can guarantee you some of the Jews he's talking to are the priests in the synagogue. They're hearing him as well. And they're... I could be wrong on this. I'm supposing this is to be the case. Certainly, if somebody came into this church today and started to argue that Jesus wasn't, wasn't the Messiah, I expect some of you would probably speak into that. But wouldn't you expect that I'd kind of lead the charge? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that make sense? I'm not saying that pridefully, but wouldn't that make sense you'd expect your pastor to lead the charge in addressing that issue? Would you not expect that the priests in the synagogue would lead the charge against Saul? Of course you would. As he is 
proclaiming something that they absolutely reject, that the Messiah referenced in the Old Testament is the Son of God, it's Jesus. And then as the Jews came against him, originally they were amazed, as they come against him, most likely being led by the priests, he confounds them. That's what it says. He can, that means he confounds their arguments against the statement, and not only does it confound them, but what does it say? He proves something, doesn't he? What does he prove? That Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I would present to you, he probably, not, again, I don't know the backstory. I don't know everything he said. I suspect he probably didn't go out and take the people in his story to the road to Damascus. I, I expect he didn't do that. I expect what Saul did is he said, let's spend some time in the Old Testament. And I suspect that Saul took the Old Testament and started unpacking the Old Testament to him and showing how Jesus fulfilled that every step of the way. I suspect he probably went to Isaiah 7 about the virgin shall conceive. I expect he probably went to Isaiah 39 through 66 about the Jesus, the sufferer, the, the Christ, the suffering servant, and showed how that was absolutely 100% fulfilled in Jesus. And I suspect he probably went to Genesis chapter 3 and showed how Jesus crushed the serpent's head. And I suspect he went everywhere in the Old Testament. That would only make sense. Did, didn't Jesus say that very same thing? You search the Old Testament, you search the Scriptures because you think you'll find salvation there, and you miss the point that it's all pointing to me. That's what he said. That's what Jesus said. I suspect what Saul did is, and this is Mr. Young Believer. Now, certainly he was well-versed in the Old Testament. But not well-versed correctly. Right? But now the Spirit's at work. And now he's looking at the Old Testament in, with different eyes. He's looking at the Old Testament with a living heart, not a hard heart. Not a dead heart. A living heart. A fleshy heart. And he's seeing Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament. And he's bringing that to the synagogue and he's showing them Jesus in the Old Testament. And when the high priests begin to argue with him, they have no argument because that's what the Old Testament is talking about. And so what's the only alternative that the Jews in Damascus have? Well, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews are no longer amazed, are they? The Jews are no longer amazed. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Could I just say this? I'm just going to pause just for a second. Again, it's very easy to say, yeah, well, this is Saul. He's really bold. He's confounding them. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. You're right. It is not prescribed that you go out and confound everybody you talk to. It is descriptive. But it's descriptive not of Saul. It's descriptive of the working of the Spirit in Saul. 
the ultimate result with Saul, by the Spirit, hanging out with believers, ministering and being ministered to by believers, the ultimate result of the Spirit moving in Saul to go and proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, and then to confound the people, the Jews, most likely including the priests, confounding them by proving that Jesus is the Messiah, is inevitable, isn't it? The result is inevitable. Isn't it? If their heart is not made alive, if they are not taken from death to life, because we are dead, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, and if the Holy Spirit does not make them alive, what's going to happen? Inevitably. They're going to hate Him. Aren't they? They're going to hate Him. I mean, come on. Let's, slow, let's back up the horses a little bit. Let's move outside of the Scriptures for a second. Now, this isn't me. Probably was at one time. But this isn't me. But this evening, the Green Bay Packers are playing in the NFC Championship game. You all know that I like the Green Bay Packers. Um, if you go up to a, green, a true Green Bay Packer fan and you start proving in every way that their view of the Green Bay Packers is dead wrong and unequivocally prove it to them that they're dead wrong and the San Francisco 49ers are a much better team, eventually what's going to happen between you and that Green Bay Packer fan? There could be a fight. There may not be, but there could be a fight. There would probably at least be a verbal argument, right? That's probably going to escalate some. And eventually, if that doesn't stop, what's going to happen? Separation. That makes sense? And we all know it's true, don't we? And that's over something stupid like football. My goodness, we, we do that over, over things like iPhones versus Samsungs. We do that over computers. It happens over, over your favorite apparel. It happens over restaurants. I mean, it's stupid, isn't it? But it's what happens when we give our hearts away to things. Isn't it? When our hearts are captivated by something, that's what happens. Can you imagine if it happens over things like food or clothing or computers or phones or, or, or sports teams? What's going to happen over Jesus? Because here's something that's different between all the other categories and Jesus. In all the other categories, it's not Holy Spirit driven, is it? Right? Green Bay, San Francisco, Green Bay, San Francisco, Green Bay. That's not Holy Spirit driven. <laughs> not even close. But there's, there's a quantum difference when we start talking about Jesus is the Messiah. No, he's not. That's a spirit called the Holy Spirit at war with another spirit called the spirit of darkness. Or to put it in different categories, that's a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan.
that conflict's inevitable. It's inevitable. You proclaim Christ because the Spirit's at work in your life. This didn't just happen to Saul. <laughs> it happens everywhere. What did, what did Stephen say about the Old Testament prophets? Yeah, which one of them didn't you kill? Right? Which one of them didn't you kill? How about all the apostles? How did that work out for them? Out of all the apostles, as far as we know, only one lived to a ripe old age. John lived to a really old age. But he got boiled in oil, most likely. And certainly got sent out, uh, exiled out to Patmos. And then all the Christians early on, and all the persecution early on in Jerusalem. That's crazy, isn't it? But that's what happens when the Spirit moves. And by the way, historically, that persecution continued until 315 A.D. So for 300 years approximately, Christians were hated. Hated. And despised and persecuted. And they kept on proclaiming Christ. And finally in 315 A.D., Constantine made Christianity official religion. You know what happened? Christianity started coming apart at the seams. It's amazing. It's stunning how it panned out. That's why Jesus said, they hated me, of course they're going to hate you. Verse 23, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill, or night and, uh, day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through the open, an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It's just, again, this is, this is not the spectacular part. The escape is not the spectacular part. The spectacular part is, is conversion and then his fellowship and his changed heart and fellowship with believers and proclaiming. It's just the storyline is continuing and demonstrates him escaping in a basket. Now, let me just say this before we get to verse 26. Most scholars, and I think they're probably right, argue that at this point in time, it doesn't say it here in Acts, but in, in Galatians 1 it talks about it, that at some point he spent three years out in the wilderness with Jesus, being taught by Jesus. Most people argue this is the point where it happened. Um, and so then he went out, spent his time in... Um, uh, in, in the wilderness, in the desert, with Jesus for three years, at which point in time, according to Galatians, he probably came back to Damascus real briefly. Just wanted to give you the fill-in of the story. And that brings us to verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Now, there's, again, most likely a three-year gap where nothing is heard from Saul. So all they had is this... this Short little time frame in Damascus, then he vanishes off the scene. So now he arrives in Jerusalem after three years of not being seen or heard of, and he attempts to join the disciples. Interesting, he leaves Jesus, and his first response is to do what? Or Jesus leaves him, I mean. And his, and his first response is to do what? 
Go find some disciples. Isn't that interesting? His first, and by the way, according to Galatians, he went back to be with the, with, the, um, uh, with the disciples in Damascus for a short time. And then he comes to Jerusalem. The first thing he wants is fellowship with other believers. That's what is on his mind. I just want to be with believers. He attempts to join the disciples, and they're all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. What does that mean? Simply summed up, it means they rejected him. That's what it means. They didn't want to be with him, because what they knew about him, outside of a little blurb in a moment in time, was that he was killing and persecuting Christians. And for, for this little glimpse of time, they, may have, they probably knew that he was with the believers in preaching Christ, but then nothing. Now, if you were a believer in Jerusalem, what would you think? You're under persecution, remember. The apostles are there, and there's some believers still because some people are probably still being saved. But persecution is raging. What would you think about Saul showing up at your door when you're having a prayer meeting? What would it be natural to think about? All you really know about Saul, other than this rumor, right, is that he's killing and persecuting Christians, and he took a break. Now Saul's at your door. And so they're saying, no. Now, the, the, it's interesting. He's attempting to join the disciples. They're all afraid, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But, verse 27, but Barnabas. Do you remember Barnabas? He shows up earlier one other time in Acts. Anybody remember what it was? Acts chapter 4. He is the last one recorded as selling his property and giving all the money to the church before we have Ananias and Sapphira. He's the last record of the faithfulness of the early church. And then everything goes south, begins to go south and unravel with Ananias and Sapphira. And then persecution comes on. And they are dispersed. <clears throat> but Barnabas took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, that the apostles, how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas probably heard, there's no evidence that Barnabas was up in Damascus. He heard the, the rumors as well. If, I'm going to suppose here, I'm just going to take a shot that it's probably somewhat likely that if you can use the illustration, the door was knocked upon and the owner of the house walked out during the prayer meeting or during the Bible study and found Saul of Tarsus, was terrified, slammed the door, refused his entry, went back in. The people in the prayer meeting or the Bible study said, who was that? That was Saul of Tarsus, everybody. Now, that would send a, a ripple of fear through the room, wouldn't it? Can you picture it? Barnabas gets up and walks to the door and walks out. And says, Saul, let's talk. Isn't that beautiful? He walks up to Saul and he says, let's talk. Tell me your story. And Saul evidently lays out the whole story for him, doesn't he? He lays out the story to him. He says, I was on, I was on my way to kill Christians, to arrest them. Haul them off to Jerusalem in chains. Throw them in prison and kill them to destroy the things of Christianity and the things of Christ. And Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. 
And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you persecute. I lost my sight. And I went to Judas' house because that's where Jesus told me to go. He told me in a vision that a guy by the name of Ananias would come and my sight would be restored. I was baptized. I received the Spirit with power. And I just want to hang out with believers. And I just want to tell people about Jesus. And can you hear Barnabas saying, you know, I heard about that. But that was so long ago. But I heard about that. Let's go talk to the apostles. And by faith, he takes this man who once was a hater of all things Christ, and he takes him over to the apostles. And it's interesting because the text records that Ananias gets up with the apostles and Saul, and Ananias is the one who tells the story. That's what it says. Ananias tells the story. Did you catch it there? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. The implication is that Barnabas is telling the story. Who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. End of apostolic interaction. At least this one. End of that verse. End of the interaction. Right after that, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. And the them is referring to the believers, the disciples, and the apostles. So once he met with the apostles, and the apostles heard his story, then it's, he's doing what? He's going in and out among them. He's fellowshipping with the, with the believers, with the disciples. He's teaching and being taught. He's fellowshipping with the apostles, teaching and being taught. And they're all growing and learning and worshipping and being enthralled with Jesus Christ. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So he's also doing what? He's preaching. Can't help it. His mouth opens and Jesus falls out. Is that what's happening? Is that what's happening? He's opening his mouth and Jesus falls out. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Wow, that's an interesting twist of events. Isn't it? Be careful. Acts chapter 6. The problem between the Hellenized Jews and the natural Hebrew Jews, right? Conflict. The, the, the deacons are chosen to resolve the conflict and it doesn't get resolved, evidently, because Stephen eventually gets stoned, killed. Now, it is interesting. The scriptures don't tell us this. But the, he's in a major conflict, and here Luke specifically records his conflict is with who? The Hellenists, right? Now, it could very well be, and we know most likely that not all the Hellenistic Jews got saved, right? Or joined the church is probably a better way to put it. But what's interesting is evidently, because 
Luke does not record or give any indication otherwise, I, I would feel safe to say this, what happened as a result of Stephen's death is most likely the Hellenists that were involved in this were, were what? Removed from the church. Removed from fellowship. Because they're evidencing that they're not believers. And so when Saul comes back, these people now have thoroughly rejected the things of Jesus. And where does Saul go? He goes to them. And he goes into conflict, purposely goes into conflict with the people. Now hear this, because this is striking. He goes into conflict with those who were intimately involved in the death of Stephen. Intimately involved. Fear? Cowering? I'm not sure what to say. But what if they don't like me? What if they reject me? I could die. No, what does it say? It's really simple. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. <laughs> he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And oh, by the way, next verse, what? I'm sorry, not next verse, next, next sentence. But they were what? Seeking to kill him. Wow, things haven't changed, have they? So he's speaking and contesting and arguing and fighting for Christ with the Hellenists, effectively calling them to repentance, right? And opposing them at the same time that they are actively opposing him. Correct? And they're plotting to kill him. And what does, what does Saul do? He just keeps going. But verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, <clears throat> the brothers protected him. You get the sense that if the brothers hadn't protected him, what do you think would have happened? They'd probably have killed him. Do you sense that Paul was, or Saul was concerned about that? But when they were seeking, but they were seeking to kill kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, which is by the sea, by the Mediterranean, and then sent him off to Tarsus. So obviously he escaped the plot to kill him. And that obviously isn't God's sovereign plan because God had other, a few other things for him, right? Just a few. Verse thirty-one. So the church throughout Judea. And Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, it multiplied. Interesting. Verse 31 is very intriguing. It, first of all, notice it doesn't say Jerusalem. Does it? It doesn't say Jerusalem. It says Judea and Samaria and Galilee. Peace was with the church. Jerusalem, it wasn't. But it is interesting. It's actually in contrast to Saul pre-salvation and Saul post-salvation because Saul was the driver, wasn't he? He was the mover and shaker of the persecution. 
And he is no longer on the scene from a persecutor. He is now on the scene as a defender, but he's been removed from the scene. And you almost get the sense that with Saul no longer in Jerusalem, temporarily, in the, at least in the outlying areas, temporarily, the drive to persecute outside Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, dissipated. Because the text says they were peace. They had peace. But it is interesting, in contrast to the vast majority of church history, when the church at peace becomes a church in disarray, or the church at peace becomes a church in lack of worship, and secularism, and all the rest, what you have here, it says they had peace, but it says also at the same time they were what? They were being built up. The Spirit was moving mightily. They were growing. They were growing deep in the Lord. They were fellowshipping. They were maturing. They were being built up. That being built up does not necessarily mean they were getting boatloads of numbers anymore. But they are certainly growing deep in the Lord. And you recognize that as he expands out, that's what he's talking about. He says being built up because it says, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The picture is they are fellowshipping in the fear of the Lord. They're holding him in highest esteem. They are full of reverential awe. They are in pursuit of submission to the one who has loved them. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is at work mightily in their midst. It concludes by saying, it also multiplied. People were being saved. What's the point of the text? The point of the text is multifold, multifaceted. But, but overall, if we want to give it an overarching perspective, it is this. It's the works of the Holy Spirit, right? But it's the work of the Holy Spirit in his children. It is a snapshot moment in time of a picture of a God who does not change. I would argue it's a picture, a snapshot in, in time of the Spirit at work in the, with the same Holy Spirit that has always been at work in his children and always will be at work in his true believers, in God's true believers, those who are truly saved. So, more specifically, there's two things we could draw out of this. One of them, we're hearing ad nauseum every week. And that is, on the one side, it is the question to ask ourselves, is the Spirit at work in my life like this? Is the Spirit moving this way? You know, we've said this every week because that's one of the overarching messages of the book of Acts. Is the Spirit moving in me this way? If not, it leads us to a second question that must be answered. And the must be answered question is, I saw you mouth it, why not? Why not? And before we answer it too easily, we've got to understand that the answer to that second question must pour out of the Scriptures. It can't pour out of just my own ideas. 
I'm doomed if I do that. The other part of this text, application of this text, necessary application of this text, is very encouraging. And that is this. Be very encouraged that the Holy Spirit has not changed. He has not changed. This is the way he works. You are not alone. <laughs> you are not. The same Holy Spirit at work in Saul, the same Holy Spirit at work in Peter, the same Holy Spirit that was at work in the rest of the apostles, the same Holy Spirit that was at work in the deacons, the same Holy Spirit that was work, at work in John, in Silas, in John Mark. And we go on, Titus and Timothy and all the rest of these people is the same Holy Spirit we have if we're a believer. And he has not changed. He has not changed. Be encouraged. Be confident. I understand fear. I get it. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. have a whole drawer full of them. But could I say this in the text? I didn't really camp on it at all. But it is interesting that the people in that Bible study, prayer meeting, whatever it was, that gathering of believers when, when Saul showed up, were clearly afraid, weren't they? Weren't they? They were clearly afraid. Except for Barnabas. And he may very well have been afraid too, but he trusted the Lord. But they were clearly afraid. But the next verse or two makes it clear that what trumped their fear? Say it again louder. The Holy Spirit did. Be confident of that. Are you afraid? I get it. Are you afraid of your neighbor? I get it. Are you afraid of your, 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 your loved ones? I get it. Not about if I get it or not, but you get my point. Are you afraid of your boss, your coworkers, the people you recreate with? I get it. I do. I find myself in that room a lot. But the storyline of the text we're looking at today, which is more powerful, the people in the Bible studies fear or the Holy Spirit? Remember it said they, after he met with the apostles, what happened? Came and went, came and went, came and went, came and went, came and went. What happens when the Spirit's at work? Be confident. Ask the question, if not, why not? And then be confident what he said is true. The Spirit changes people. It changes us so that we desire what we never desired before. We long for something we never longed for before. We crave something that we never, ever craved before. Quite to the contrary, we crave something that we once despised. That is Christianity. <laughs> that is being a follower of Jesus. The call of the message this morning is not to try harder. It isn't. The call of the message is like the call of every message, just about to repent and believe, isn't it? To repent and believe. Be a disciple. Be a learner of Jesus. And you'll be transformed by the Spirit.
if you're a believer. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. It is easy for us to get caught up in all the peripherals of the story. Thank you for protecting us from that this morning. We fear. We know we do. We doubt. We know we do. We question. We sometimes even cower. And maybe for some of us, we regularly cower and become debilitated by our fear. And we were reminded that perfect love casts out fear. So Lord, help us to understand and know your love. Help us to comprehend how great your love is. And we ask that your spirit change us so that we, are, we find ourselves longing to be with believers. Longing to fellowship in your word. And longing to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. And proclaiming and confounding people and proving that Jesus is the Christ. So glorify yourself in our lives, personally and corporately. Bring much light into our world. In your name I pray. Amen.